Welcome to Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week's episode, we have special guest Dale Evans on to talk about his experience studying filmmaking and photography at college, and as well as his passions in the outdoors and his talent, obviously, in the field. We'll highlight that shortly. Before then, I want to say, guys, it's good to see you. Michael, Ron, and I'm Mark Raycroft. It's late spring, early summer. It's actually into the first days of summer. I just quickly have to touch on this. I know weather is such a common subject to bring up to start things, but it's hot here in Ontario, and I'm seeing snow in Wyoming hot. at the end of June. It's hot. Yeah. So what's with the snow? What what's with the hot? What's hot? Oh, don't do that. Don't mix Celsius and Fahrenheit. I'm going to get confused. <laughs> I am, I am the sweaty. Snow. I'm a Northern Canadian guy. Well, it's actually, that's not true. I live in Southern Canada, but I'm Northern. I don't like heat. So anything that gets to above 80 Fahrenheit, I'm like, this is not comfortable. Right. And what it is now, and this is going to lead in today's pro tip, everybody. This is a good pro tip, I think, anyway. It's, it's a practical and important one with nothing to do with the actual cameras. But the UV is off the charts these days. So on a clear day, we've had a lot of sunny days. It's not necessarily that the temperatures super hot but the grass is drying up everything because the uv has been so intense and so anyway it's and so when i saw it on social media this morning somebody posted a story of wolves they filmed in in yellowstone with snow right a whole pack snow it's, it's been snow. snow in wyoming and colorado montana they closed part of a road in rocky Mountain national park it's the highest contiguous paved road in the lower 48 it's like twelve thousand feet they closed that road i think they got like 10 inches of snow it, it is kind of weird to be almost july and it's snowing i mean it snows year round uh, up on those peaks it snows all the time sure. but not 10 inches i mean are you might get a snow still running in high elevation colorado are they still going they can't be the ski area is, yeah there's one in colorado that still go it, it goes to like august if on a good year like this no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's all about elevation then because here we're not experiencing that. Yeah. No, and it's really different because if you look at the weather in Alaska, it's been really nice and pretty dry. You know, there's a lot of, when Missy and I were there a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, lots of smoke in the air because all the forest fires burning throughout the state. And, you know, just depending on the winds, you know, you could wake up and there'd be snow in the bowl. And then you drive over like towards Seward, you get over one little mountain range and then it's clear again. Smoke. You know, just smoke from different fires. And, okay. I, you know, I think these fires get pretty big, but uh, for lower 48 standards, for Alaska standards, it's just pretty common. So I'm really hoping for good weather for our upcoming voyage and, and traveling and stuff. Have you heard what's going on lately for fires up there? Has it been? I haven't. The images, I mean, Alaska, I see a lot because I follow Alaska-oriented pages on social media instagram in particular and I'm, I'm seeing a lot of clear images and not smoke and fire issues have you heard that this is yeah no what? i haven't heard i mean but if you look at the forecast for anchorage for like the next 10 days it's there's not much rain in the forecast at all it's pretty much all okay you know partly cloudy and sunny when we were there you know i love i live for that rainy just foggy weather that's my favorite i just like that i just like photographing in that i like being in that it just feels I don't know. It just feels different to me. And it seems like every time we're in Alaska, it's sunny and blue skies and all the Alaskans just love it because they right. don't, you know, yeah. it's vitamin I'm D in and out and a they lot. They don't get that all winter. No vitamin D at all. Summertime. Exactly. 
exactly. When you do the math, with right at the summer solstice right now, there's hardly any nighttime, right? So if you have blue skies, from a photographer's point of view, you're very limited. Yeah, middle of the day is, you know, just when we were driving through the Yukon, it was, you couldn't photograph in the middle of the day just because it was so harsh light. But the middle of the day is like normal places, well, not normal, the same, in the middle of North America, that's like a whole day's worth of harsh light because Mm -hmm. the days are so long there. So my point is you've got a few hours early, early in the morning, maybe you're shooting till 7 or 8 a.m., then you're not ready to good light until like 9 o'clock that night. Yeah, I don't know. Coming up, there'll be a lot of podcasts that we'll get to record if that's the case. (laughs) A lot of podcasts. And then, you know, you want that cloudy stuff when we're, you know, you want blue skies for the reflection on the water when we're out looking for whales and otters and that. Right. But then you want middle of the day to be, you know, you want the photographer's dream, right? You want everything just right. So you get sun and blue skies and then it clouds up so you can still shoot and then you get it back to sun and. But that's a long day. I mean, there's no way we rent that boat. I think it's 10 hours, right? There's there's no way we can span, you know, the whole good light period of the time. Right. So we'll see. We'll just have to take it as it comes. I mean, we do want fairly decent weather just for for the boat ride. You know, you don't want really big seas, but... Oh yeah, no, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. I know <laughs> Missy and I may be on the same page. <laughs> what do you got there? A bal- baklava? No, no. I'm I'm getting ready for my pro tip. What is it? Well, let's hear it. Let's see it. Well, my pro tip is, you know, the more years that we're exposed to sun, the more burns we have. I'm this blue-eyed dude who, if I get in the sun for a couple hours, I get sunburned. And it just is something we don't want to expose ourselves to any more than necessary because of the worries of skin cancer and stuff. And now with the high UV, the long days in the summer, this is something that I picked up a couple of years ago to go on canoeing and fishing trips. Because when you're on the water, it's it's double because you got the bounce, the reflection coming off the water, plus the sun's rays on top of you. Even with a hat on, it gets you from underneath. So this is... Well, it's called a buff by this company, but it's like a neck gaiter. It's this lightweight tube you pull over your head. And you can just basically, its you do sweat in it in the summertime. It's unfortunate. There's no way around it, but it's not necessarily that hot. You can just drop it around your neck and look super cool. Or <laughs> if the sun's up, you can pull it and put it right up over your ears, over your hat, over your face, over your nose, although it's hard to breathe. It's, you can do it, but it hinders that to a degree. My point is you have to protect yourself. If you're out on a hike for wildlife and you go all day, if you can't find the shade of a big tree or a thicket to get under to take a break, when whenever it's downtime, you're having your snacks, your lunch, telling your stories. If you're out in the sun, you need to protect your skin. So not only these neck tubes. So I have one that has Rapella on this and Buff. I have one that's made by Kuyu that's light as well. And I use these for hiking or if I'm on a canoe trip or anywhere I'm going to be exposed to sun for more than 20 minutes, half an hour, because I know I'm going to burn. So it's a matter of being smart that way. I also have these lightweight gloves. I can I can hear the opening to one of those podcasts from the boat. Well, I'll be wearing the wild and exposed. Mark Raycroft is in the buff. 
Right. <laughs> I was hoping I was hoping one of you guys would grab the buff. It's not that kind of buff, people. It's a branding. It's, it's just the name of the buff. So <laughs> be smart about exposing, even like riding a mountain bike. So, you know, Michael and I had a great adventure last July biking for moose and other wildlife that we just happened to encounter on the trip. But you're cycling on a bike. You've got breeze in your face. It feels cool. I'm still getting burnt, even though I feel cool. So I've got these gloves on and I've got the buff or the neck tube and you get them all different weights. You know, as it becomes winter, you can get heavier ones and they're actually good insulation as well. But the point is that they keep, they block the UV and protect you from getting burnt. And if you love to be out in the field, being a wildlife photographer or videographer, you've got to cover that up. And it's, it's the way I do it now. Instead I think getting... it's important to bring up because it's something you don't think about. And it is so, it's not like when you pack it, it takes up any space. You can throw it right alongside the no lens way. in your pack. You can throw it in your back pocket. It's like yep. having a handkerchief totally. pretty much. Yep. You should have it. If you follow any people on Instagram that do any fishing, you know, a lot of these guys that fish, they're against that reflection all day long, every day. Those guys wear those that stuff a lot. I think that's where it started is in that industry where they oh, just started sure. wearing these buffs and then they would wear gloves and they always wear long sleeve shirts. Most of them wear pants. They don't even wear shorts. Mm -hmm. And it's per fairly warm if you're fishing off the coast of Florida or whatever. But they want to be totally covered up because that sun will destroy your yeah, skin, skin over time. You can get a lightweight fabric shirts, very similar material. So it's, you know, you stay hydrated and you wear this stuff and because if you're out there day after day, I mean, you just got to be smart about it. And it's just so easy to forget. It, I forget all the time. I'm like, oh, I should have, you know, you just pretty much, you cycle a lot. Yeah. When you, yeah. Mount, when you exactly. cycle I for exercise. sunscreen on every time I go out, but you having that is just a lot easier and it's a lot cleaner and. You know, it helps for bugs too. So, true. Yeah, it's something to think about because again, they're it's lightweight, and as you say, Michael, you can stick it in your pack in your pocket. You don't even know it's there until you need it. And you can the buy ten of them and put one in every pack, right? Or put one in your briefcase with your computer. Put one with your cameras. Put one in your truck or car or whatever in the glove box. Just always have one around. Yeah, fifteen dollars or so. I mean, that's where they start. Yeah, and the gloves aren't expensive too because they're just lightweight gloves. They were, they were $15 or something like that as well. So something to think about. We're at the beginning of summer, and with the high UV here in southern Canada, it's an issue, and I don't want it to keep me inside. Do they advertise that UV index whenever? Is that why it's on top of mind? Because it hasn't been a thing here until like the last year where you start seeing a lot of that UV index on the news where it'll say, ah, if you're going out today, you really want to cover up because that. It's something that they, on the weather forecasts that they read on the radio, or if you look on the apps, there'll be, it's not scientific to any um, specific number, but it's just medium or low, medium, high, or, or very high. Right. It seems more often than not now, especially near the solstice this time of year at the long days, that when it's a bluebird, blue sky day, that the UV is almost always guaranteed to be very high. And for people who are susceptible to burning, uh, having their skin get a sunburn, it's something that you have to pay, pay attention to now to keep enjoying the outdoors. And not nobody wants to get skin cancer. So, Good tip. That's, I like it. We'll put a little link to something online so that people we'll can see what you're show. talking about. 
I think Missy took my photo without, you know, I don't know. I'll just send the model release over after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> you have, Mike. All right. Go so ahead. for my pro tip, you know, we're always talking about video and especially me. And a lot of people are using DSLRs for video now, right? They make these really cool little cages for your camera. And you can pick one up for just about any kind of camera body that you use. But you really have to buy it specific to the camera body that you're using. But it's a little cage that has all kinds of mounting points. So it makes it much easier. It's much harder to use as a DSLR. But figure if you're using a video tripod, it's going to be mounted to a video head. So you're not necessarily playing with all the the camera ergonomically like you would if you're shooting without a tripod. But once you put this little cage around your camera body, it gives you the opportunity to attach a microphone, to attach maybe a light. Although with wildlife, we're not going to be using lights. But if you have to be doing an interview with somebody or something, you might want a light. And it just gives you a, a couple of mounting points for handles too. Sometimes it's easier to run your camera, just sway, you know, do a pan with a handle or something. And they're really pretty inexpensive. The one that I found here for that Sony camera that I've been using is... I don't even remember what it was. I think it was under 50 bucks, but it's got all kinds of little mounting points and I can, you know, by the time you put the camera in here and now I've got a spot to put my microphone, I've got a spot to put a handle, I've got a spot to tie cables down. So if I'm running a cable from a monitor, an external monitor to the camera, I can tie it down so it doesn't get ripped out. So it's just a pretty convenient little thing. If you're into video, I would highly recommend putting some sort of cage around it just to give it more functionality when you're out in the field. Very cool. Where did you get it from? This one's made by a company called Small Rig, which is very popular on Amazon. And okay. uh, that's where I picked it up. I was probably looking at something else and it probably popped up and said, oh, look at this. And then I'm such a frequent shopper. I'm like, oh, I'll try that out. You love the gear, man. But Yeah, you love the gear. And I see a lot of the guys that shoot for me, they actually use these on their cameras. And I've always seen them. And, I, and it's just one of those things I never think about. But I finally thought about it, got it, and I really like it. You think if you went on Amazon and searched that camera body or, or whatever camera body you had, that these housing units, if it was available, would pop up? Or would you yeah, have I to do so. it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you could just type in your camera body and then just put camera cage. Or, you know, they make L brackets too. You know, a lot of times you'll put an L bracket on your camera for going vertical or horizontal on a ball head or on the Wimberley head or something. It's mm -hmm. going to be along those same lines, but this one is more specific to video. And it's designed to go on your camera body because it leaves openings where you need to, if you need to change the battery, you don't have to take the housing or this camera cage off. You can still get to the battery and you can still get to right. all the dials that are appropriate to use. So. Cool. We'll put a link to the one that I have here that works on that Sony A7R, A3RQQPV, right? Seventy-one Z seventy-two hike. Seven hundred. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Forty pixel. How many megapixels that camera again? I don't know. A lot. A lot. I think it's thirty-six. Thirty-six. Why don't you have that new? zoom for it i'm thinking about it the 200 <laughs> what is it 200 to 600 right i want to play with that on our trip coming up can you get that i so don't we know can... if they're out yet i know they were <laughs> announced oh, but they not i thought i saw it as pre-order and it's under two thousand bucks so it's very similar to your 200 to 500 question 
Okay. So, so uh, you know, it might be pretty handy. I mean, it's a lot like you guys with the 200 to 500, you're at 5.6, right? And you're yeah. at a constant 5.6 on that lens, right? Yes. Well, this one's a 5.6, So I'm assuming when you go to 600, you're at 6.3, but that's only a third of a stop or two thirds of a stop. So yep. it's probably not going to be that bad. And if it's sharp at 600 and you run your ISO up to compensate for the 6.3 and you're still going to get that depth of field that you want, you're going to be able to separate your subject. So I was thinking that might be kind of a cool little setup, especially for that boat when we're out trying to shoot whales or otters or seals or whatever we're trying to shoot. That might be kind of a handy, because that is a full frame camera. So you're really not getting the benefit of a, you know, Missy's using the D500 with the 200 to 500, so she gets that crop factor. I don't think you guys get crop factor with your. Oh, but we do because right? we shoot on a 46 megapixel sensor. So megapixel you get the crop factor in the computer. You can right. crop as much as you want. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I'm going to see. I doubt that it'll be out by the time we go, but. Sure. No worries. It might I'm be just worth trying. I would like I'd... to try it just to check the glass, you know? I would even yeah. rent one for if a rental company had it. I would rent one because I bet it's not that expensive for ten days. I the mirrorless cameras have me intrigued, and I just have not played with one yet. And now that I see they have a telephoto that fits right up my alley, it's just something. It's on the radar. Well, and they, had, they came out with, at the same time. They came up with a straight up six hundred f four, and one of my buddies switched to Sony, and he he's a golf shooter, and he shoots all Sony now switch from Canon and they gave him one because he shoots for Sony part partly and right. he loves it. The 604. So, and it's pretty light too. You know, I'm shooting that 120 to 300 2.8 Sigma. That right. thing is horrible. It's heavy, and heavy, just heavy. Per weight in comparison. I see. Yeah. It's a nice sharp lens, but it's super heavy. So I don't know. I think hey, that 604 the would be half the weight of that. 120 to 300. I may be a little weird this way, but as a wildlife photographer, I can't ever see, as far as big animals, ever wanting to shoot prime with no. all these telephotos. Why would I want to spend money on a 600 prime if I can get a two to six? And as the animal moves, I can compensate, or even if the animal nor I move, I can change up composition so quickly. I, I think the bird guys for sure would want it, and that's about speed. it. Speed? It's because of the F4? Well, the bird guys would want it just for the 600 F4, yeah, just for that yep. sort of thing. You know, if you're photographing on a nest or something, you always want the more. Right. Well, bears are like that. We want the distance. We want these animals, any animal. The further you are, the more they'll behave naturally and give you more behavioral images, which, you know, are in higher demand in portraits, right? So, but I we think all, there's we all want a, lot distance. Of, a lot of companies focusing on the quality zooms because people are going away from the primes yeah. and you know what even 10 years ago the only option was 100 to 400 right or the two to four two with to four. nikon yeah and and uh you know they've come out with some of these longer zooms that have have gotten to where they're producing some decent quality some sharper images so a person doesn't necessarily need the prime anymore i mean the only way you were going to get 600 10 years ago was if you bought the prime right. now you don't necessarily have to do that because there, there are so many even you know off-brand uh quality zooms that a guy's got some options so 
even the brand ones aren't that, you know, the, it's, right. compared to what they used to be, they're a fraction of the price. And, you know, on my pack that I'm going to carry on a trip, whether I'm hiking or I'm canoeing or I'm going on an airplane, I can't fit both those lenses in with, you know, a couple camera bodies, a, a wide angle lens, hard drives. I, you know, I can't take two big lenses. So the zoom makes total sense for, for all kinds of logical reasons for the world I live in. Or maybe right. people it doesn't, but I just I'm surprised that you know there's still people that get excited about this. A friend of mine, she just got a Canon. I think it was the new 600. Did it come out this year? It was recent. Yeah, I think she, they have a version three out. She yeah, loves she, it. She just she, came out with the version two not too long ago. Yeah, she, but I think they're yeah, getting lighter and sharper. I think well, that's part and, of it because she didn't want weight anymore, and being lighter has helped her. Yeah. But I mean, she has a lot of birds, so that could be why. So Charles Glasser that we've had on a couple times, I've watched, I've been watching some of his comments back and forth to people because he's been on some, you know, some workshops like he does often. And uh, one of the things that he said, especially with the Canon glass, that new version threes, the L threes, he said they're much lighter anyway, but they've also moved the weight back from the objective back toward the camera body. So he is shooting his 600, but he's, he's hand holding it. And he said it's no problem at all. He's shooting it quite a bit handheld because they've moved that weight back so it's closer to your center, so it's easier to stabilize, you know, just with using your body as a platform. Plus, it's probably image stabilized too. Yeah. Now, yeah, I indeed. was just on a commercial shoot the other day, one of our shoots, and I thought, well, here's a story for you. So we fly out there, and good old United lost all of our luggage. They didn't lose it. They just failed to put it on the plane. So we were there for 24 hours. And I normally travel with what I need to shoot. I may not have an extra pair of underwear, but by golly, I'm going to be able to get that shoot done, right? But I did pack my Ronin S, which is my little gimbal, in my luggage. And, you know, I thought, well, I'll just hook that up and then I'll get nice steady video when I get there. Well, I didn't have it for the first day. So I'm having to shoot that Sony camera handheld with just the image stabilizer that's built into the Sony. And I've done that a lot with Canon. So I've got Canon image stabilized experience and I've got, now I've got Sony image image stabilized experience and the Canon is way better. If you're just trying to handhold an image to get a nice steady shot, the Canon stabilization is, I can make that, I can make that work. And maybe it's just cause I'm more used to that camera and cause I am, I've shot it tons, but just going back and looking at that footage after having to do that all day, not having the choice, it was amazing. I was not prepared to see what I saw. It worked. I mean, we still got usable stuff, but it was more stationary stuff that we could just lock in on or use a rest or find something to set our arms on or you it was know, video. that worked. Yeah, for video. It's all video. Okay. Yeah, okay. It was very difficult to have, whereas with the, with the Canon, I can oftentimes walk and shoot and just keep that nice tight you know setup against my body to keep it steady and i can get usable video i couldn't do that with the sony to my standards you know i everybody has different standards so some people might be able to they might like it or they might can make it work better but i just i couldn't it was pretty interesting but you know, then you then my luggage showed up and then i was able to use the ronin s and there's no better setup than that little bitty sony sitting on the Ronin S because of the weight factor and just a smaller form factor sitting on that Ronin. 
makes it so much easier to use. So the second day we had that luggage or the luggage showed up, I had the Ronin and then we were able to, to make it all work. Cool. Sorry. You're, you're like a, a premier customer for United. I know. And they lost it. I mean, they were like preferred customer. Yeah. Preferred. preferred, Special. And it doesn't, I don't think it does much. They put a little tag on your luggage, but I don't think it matters. It's not like it comes off any sooner or whatever, but it was kind of frustrating. They were having thunder showers in Denver. The ramp was closed. They, you know, I could see how it happens, but it is frustrating when you show up, but that definitely for years I've traveled with everything I need to shoot, but I've gotten kind of lazy over the last couple of years. And like, I didn't pack a battery charger. Fortunately, I went with full charged batteries. So I was able to shoot all day, but if I didn't have my batteries charged, my chargers were in my luggage. So I, you know, normally I'll get to a location, I'll throw out the chargers, I'll charge everything up, you know, top them off or whatever I need to do. That way I'm good the next day. But I didn't have the chargers. So there's a lot to be learned. You get these little lessons. Yes, so much with video. I, with stills, I, I, everything's on my person. I got my backpack full of my gear. And if that doesn't handle it all, then I take a, a laptop bag. Right. Because I can take both of those carry-on. And I can put all my hard drives and my laptop and a couple of chargers in the laptop bag and in my backpack. But, yeah, it's, it's for that reason. Yep. But and and I guess the one thing, we flew into an airport that only flies those little, I don't know, those little regional jets. So normally I'll take a carry-on that would fit my charger, but... I had to take a hard case, which was a little bit smaller because they're going to gate check it. Right. And I'm not going to put a soft sided checked bag or a carry on bag with all my cameras in the back. So I took a smaller carry on and that precluded taking those chargers too. But it's just, I choose all my flights based on the plane and that one, there was no, no way around it. That's another travel hack. Oh yeah. That's a, to watch when you book a flight, you know, are these, these airlines have many flights going from major destinations throughout the day and they're all, they're different planes, different sizes of planes. So I think I learned that from you, Michael, is to watch and look at the plane of what it is, you know, is it an Airbus 320? What, what are we flying on? What's the space look like just to know. And you'll see sometimes for the same flight path, there'll be an hour difference in time because the plane you're on. Sure. An hour on the trip. If I fly to Calgary, I can be on a regional jet or I can be on a, big you know 737 or 320 airbus 320 and i'll always choose the bigger plane because i can take my bigger carry-on yeah and then i have a three-hour rule too so if i can get to somewhere within three hours of driving and not have to fly on a regional jet i'll do that over having to take a smaller carry-on lots of travel hacks for sure all right ron what is yours all right one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish is get some bears fishing so to be able to tell that whole story you've got to get the prey base and what's going on under the water as well and so i thought about this a couple different ways i've looked around for some uh, underwater housing so that i can get shot of the salmon with the dslr Uh, i know that we're going to be able to get it with an action cam whether it's the osmo or the uh, gopro Uh, but i i come along a reasonably priced option and I was a little bit scared of these at first so I've done quite a bit of research and it's called the Outex O-U-T-E-X and it's basically a silicon gel 
that encapsulates your camera and then you screw on lens covers. And that look that Mark has on his face, this is the same thing that I've been dealing with in my head. You say, is this made by Durex? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, it's made by Outex, O-U-T-E-X, not Durex. Negative. We're not preventing, we're allowing. So Shoot, shoot safe, buddy. <laughs> I'm trying to keep this. I'm really trying to keep this family friendly. It is family friendly. It's just the name of a brand. <laughs> so anyway, this Altex housing, it's only good down to 25 feet. So you're not going to use it to go on a scuba diving photography trip or to take it down trying to photograph great white sharks. But what I'm looking for is something that you can get below the surface and you can kind of split the horizon. So you're, you're going to get the habitat above the water as well as what's going on underneath. How are you going to um, do this? Because I've thought about that a lot, right? So I'm thinking GoPro uh, or action camera. So I'm thinking, okay, let's so that, get a little bitty is, tripod and set it down on the bed of the river or whatever we're at and put some rocks on it so it's stable and then hit record and then back off and let it happen. Yes. And that, that, was, that? that was my initial intent. Yep. But the other, you can get, you can buy a uh, tripod connection as well for this thing. So you could do the same thing with the DSLR. And they're not, it's not dirt cheap. I mean, these things are still 500, depending on what you want to buy. If you're going to use a, a wide angler fisheye lens, you have to buy the housing that includes the dome for, for those lenses as well. And so you're still looking at about a thousand bucks. So you and have the to know the size of the lens that you're going to put in there. You it's either uh, the, 77 or 82 or no, the dome is pretty much universal. So it's got a it's got a screw on port uh, for the the Outex, the silicone housing already, and then it just you screw that dome onto the silicone, and so that's how it seals. So the other option is renting uh, a housing. Let's throw back to when we had the podcast with Jorge Hauser there, the underwater shark specialist. Amazing podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go to it. Those housings, what were they costing for what he was using? About he, he represented seven or, them. Seven or eight thousand dollars, and that's just oh, seriously. That was yeah, that they're big built. Jump. They're built specifically for each individual camera. They have to basically wait for the camera come out and then they have to backwards engineer everything so that all of the control buttons are accessible and you can, you know, you can still make whatever adjustments you need to make underwater. Okay. So that, that basically is the next step. I, yeah. That's good to point out. Okay. Yeah. But lens that's rental or what is it? Lens rental or lens authority. They've got some uh, housings that are available to rent. So that's another option. It's probably the safer option. The, the only problem is I don't necessarily want to dedicate a camera just to the underwater housing for the whole trip. So I'm looking at a couple different options, but th just to throw out a couple different things, I know there are people that do, you know, from time to time, you'll see some spawning brook trout or spawning salmon, or, you know, you want to get something. We've got soft shell turtles. So up in uh, Thermopolis, where I'm from, in the mineral water, 
these soft-shell turtles that come into the shallows all the time, and I've always wanted to get a shot of them underwater because, to my knowledge, nobody's ever gotten it in that area in the state. So there are some opportunities to get some underwater shots, and so I've been looking at different options for a long time. This was just the most reasonable option, and I probably won't be doing any deep water diving with them, uh, obviously, but it does give you an option that's somewhat reasonably priced to take your DSLR underwater and have it be sealed and safe. Mark, you have a question. I do. Uh, do you source it directly from the company or where do you find this most easily? Yeah, directly from the company. And So you don't have to necessarily buy it for a Canon or a Nikon. It's a, it's like a, it fits over that silicon enclosure. It will fit over anybody. Fit under anybody. And they have, they do have two sizes. So like if you were going to use a 1DX or a D5. So you don't think yeah, you're going to do it? It's just outtex.com. I'm still exploring the options, but that's just laying a couple different ways out. Here's my thought process on that, because I was thinking about that too. It would be super cool. I guess what you get if you have an enclosure like that is you have a much better opportunity to shoot stills. So if you're seeing a lot of these pictures where you're half, half water and half above water, still images of that are really cool. Provided you got the right light, you got light down below underwater, you got light above, and you can kind of match that. It's pretty awesome. But for video, I'm thinking, man, I can just throw this GoPro or this video. The this GoPro Osmo. is going to be the ticket. Yeah. I think that's the ticket, right? And you you can just put it on a an ex, a, an extension, like a monopod kind of thing. And then if you've got fish coming by, you just put it in the water, and you know it's going to be some trial and error. That's what I was thinking. It's going to take us a couple yeah. hours just to figure out did that work? Did I have it in the right spot? Yeah, it's going to be a full card of images because you're not going to know until after the fact right whether it works you're or not the, and the other thing that i thought is you're in the water and you're doing it and, and well, the point the hope is that there's so many salmon going by that they don't care and they don't stop and if you get in the water and you stay still you can see the screen and split it with them going by yeah hopefully but, if if you have a wetsuit and you're willing to get exactly in the yeah. water so if you're not going to do that you're just going to you know put throw your tripod in the water weigh it down and leave the camera sitting on the tripod half in, half out. So you can line up your shot, check your horizon, and then just leave it because they, they do have this tripod fitting so that you can okay. you can keep it on the tripod. And I then chest would work in the, in some of these rivers. Possibly. But you're I mean, to get low enough to be able to see the viewfinder, the way this housing is, to get low enough to see the viewfinder, I think you're gonna have to be wetsuit in and in the water and well, i've tried so. i've thought about oh it'd be really cool to put a camera in a path where you think a bear is going to walk right right so if you're right on the edge of the stream or the river or whatever and you know that bears travel this path obviously there's no guarantees but if you could somehow get a foot stepping next to a camera the problem is is i think they'll notice that camera right away and then it's going to be Food. Yeah. Not food, gonna but they're going to buy gonna it or they're going to just explore it. Explore yeah. it. So, but I would be willing to, to take a chance with a $350 action camera to see if right. I could get that cool shot. Yeah, I think it's a lot of trial and error. So I think having the time that we're going to have is going to help. Yeah. And second pro tip, I just picked up a Nikon D810 for really cheap. I mean, 
pennies on the dollar just to have a, a backup body and potentially because you can buy the housings for those things on eBay. I've been, this is why I've been looking uh, for some underwater options and the housings for those are cheaper because everybody's getting rid of their D810s. And so I picked it up for pennies on the dollar for what this guy paid for it. I got a good deal. It's got like 300 shutter actuations, so he never used it. Uh, it's a, so it's relatively new camera body. And then all your but lenses work at, too, right? And all the lenses work as well. So looking at all the changes that are being made right now, if you are a person who's fighting, wanting to get new equipment, you don't need new equipment. There is a ton of good, solid, used equipment online. Just do your research and be patient, and you'll find the right deal. And that's, you know, that's kind of what happened with this uh, this second body that I have now, just as a backup. But it is, it's a phenomenal camera. It almost takes as good images as the 850 for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, I've talked to some people, Jason um, included, that he uses 810 as much as the 850. So it is a solid camera body. And... And you can buy all these, you know, the housings, the the bodies, all that stuff for cheap. And it is a, you know, definitely a pro level body. I've used it. I have one I've used for years. Yeah. I still use it at times for sure. Yeah, it's a good body. The only the only handicap is its speed for action. Right. On yep. Other than that, it's thirty six megapixels. The files are great. The, the camera's durable. It's, it's very similar to the eight fifty as far as housing. So your speed, you mean just the shutter? I mean, frames you can only second. take frames per second, yeah. Frame I think, rates, yeah. I think it's frame rates three frames per second, if I if I'm guessing accurately, or something like maybe it's faster than that, but uh, it's I think not. I said seven, but five. Maybe yeah, it's five. Anyway, I'll What's have the to look. Eight fifty. nine with the with okay. the grip, seven without. Yep. So it's easy to check these specs online, everybody, but the 810 must be five frames per second. You just notice that for speed. The 850, I can stop, you know, an animal running, no problem. The 810, it can be a challenge. But otherwise, image quality for any static subjects, no problem, ever. Well, so, all right, so we'll do it. I don't okay. know. It might be worth it because we could throw the Sony in it too, right? If it's that yeah. style, you can just put any body in there and you just yep. try it. Cool. Good find. Yep. So again, it's from the company. We'll put a link on the on the show notes. All right. We're gonna a question of the week comes from Michael Morrow this week, and it's more of a deep thoughts. <laughs> Michael Morrow. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I feel like I'm. No, it's good. I feel Roll like it might it. be like raining this. on the parade or something. I no, don't know. It's I just, relevant. I just have a huge question. There's a lot of people that'll put up really awesome images, right? On, on Instagram. Instagram. So we're talking Instagram. They'll go out and they'll spend days trying to get a really cool image and they'll get one. They'll put it up on their page. And then what happens is, is I think you were calling them hubs. These hubs or these Instagram, what do you call it? Instagram site you know, or Instagram? I wouldn't even say hubs are the ones that I consider to be established that might have 50,000, 100,000 or more 
followers and it's a hub about that content, that niche, that subject matter. It right. could be any type of photography. But but you're also talking about anybody who reposts. And I've noticed more and more of these general sites popping up owned by just people, individuals, and they might have 100 followers. And all they're doing is reposting other people's stuff. So the hub thing kind of, I think of hubs as, as, as um, a shared site that's established. And I know they had to start somewhere. But when these new ones start out at 100 and it's just somebody who... I don't know. I'll let you finish your thoughts. Well, yeah. Sorry. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just think about it and I have a problem with it because you'll get these sites starting to build up and they're just poaching all the best stuff that they can get from as many different people as they can get and they'll put it out there. Now, I think a lot of the new ones, like you're referring to, they don't get a lot of traction and they don't, they go away pretty fast, but I, I don't follow them that much. Generally, what I do is I'll block them right away because I just don't feel like somebody should be building their their persona online using a bunch of other people's images they're just curating you know it's like a library and they're just curating the best stuff and it's super easy to do so i just block those people but then you get these big hubs that do the same thing and then what i do when i when i see that so i'll follow a couple of them just because you do see some cool stuff that is the good thing about them you'll see stuff that you may not see anywhere else but rather than liking it there the good thing about the big ones, too, is they're very good about giving a photo credit, too, right? What I'll do is I'll go to the people, the person that took the image, click on that, go find that image on their feed, and I'll like it there because I think that person should get that like or should get that, that me visiting Correct. their site to see their stuff as opposed to me just going to some site that's curated for all the best stuff out there. So I don't know. Just here lately, I've been thinking a lot about it just seems kind of disingenuous to build this site with everybody else's work and then put it out there and get a hundred thousand followers that just see the best of the best. And the photographer that bought the equipment, took the time, figured out the behavior, did all this stuff to get this really amazing, amazing image. They may not even get credit for it because how many people actually flip through the description to find the photographer that took that and then actually click through. Now, I'm sure there is some click through, and I'm sure you do pick up followers that way. But to me, it's not worth it. To me, I would rather just not be involved with that. And I know a lot of these sites have these little things that says, well, if you put our hashtag in your hashtags, and if you follow us, then you're eligible to have your image showcased on our site. Well, I don't do that. I won't do that. I just won't put any of that stuff out there. Early on, I did. I was thinking, well, you know, it's you know, you want your stuff seen, but then it just, I don't know. For me, it just, I just have a problem with it where I feel like, you know, you also get a lot of the people that will thank these sites for running their image. And I, I don't, you know, these, you're taking good enough pictures that other people want to use your stuff. I say just build your own site and, and, or build your own persona online through Instagram and just work that. And you will, you will find those people. If your stuff's good enough to be, poached by other people or other sites you know just work it yourself and make it happen and and not use these other hubs to because i don't think it grows your your persona much i think it does grow it now the the flip side of that and i was mentioning this to you guys earlier just yesterday the goat alliance so it's for mountain goats and it's a it's a conservation site for mountain goats and these guys are out there actively trying to preserve area for mountain goats and and they work work on projects that 
100% benefit a mountain goat population. They actually emailed me or DM'd me on Instagram. And said, they, hey, asked. You got, they asked. They said, hey, can we use this image? And I'm like, for sure. I appreciate you asking. And for sure, it's for conservation. It's, it gives people an idea of some other behavior that they may not have that they're going to showcase. That's great. And if it gets their message out, awesome. I will do that all day long. But for someone that's just looking to build their persona just with likes and then they have 100,000 followers with using on the back and they're building on the back of everybody else, I kind of have a problem with that. So I don't know. It's not necessarily a question of the week. It's just kind of something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Poached, poached is a good descriptor, but a lot of people now think, you know, they consider it reposting or sharing. And there's this philosophy, there's this swing in philosophy. And our, our experience is we recognize how hard it is and the talent involved for these people who create these quality images worth sharing. And many of us who have copyrighted work that we need to protect for our clients have a watermark on the image. And we ask and in our bio on our social media and on Instagram specifically, we say, please ask before reposting. But unfortunately, just like captions, I don't think half the people read that. They don't go to the bio and they repost. I had a caribou reposted today by a site that's got like 16 followers. They didn't ask. They did credit. That's the only way you find out. There are those that don't credit or put the link. And unless you do a search on the caribou hashtag and look, you don't see those ones. That is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of Instagram attributes that I really enjoy and I like. But there are some other components that are frustrating and can be stressful and you know the idea of images just being popped anywhere that we've worked hard to create or anybody for that matter whatever the type of photography is if it's not if permission hasn't been granted it shouldn't happen and there has been this swing i've recognized i've seen it especially this year where it's commonplace for people to express a thank you but i don't know what direct messages have happened behind the scenes but they're not established big hubs. It's not National Geographic giving a shout out for this photographer. It's somebody with 10 followers or 100 followers who's just starting up a page on white-tailed deer has grabbed it and put it there. And they put a credit. That's good. But they didn't maybe ask. But I don't understand why. I don't, I don't make the psychological link either to saying thank you because there's nothing to it. You know, unfortunately, our society works a lot of it on business and on money because you know we we have to do all this stuff to create these images and there are like you say the goat alliance there are applications that are worth supporting but when it comes to an individual you know it's it's only in my opinion respectful that they ask first before they do it but i instagram is all over the map because people are from all over the world their perspectives their philosophies their social culture is all different i get artists you know we have a standard. If somebody is going to use an image for artist reference, they have to pay for it because we've had to pay to create that image, not just with our time, but with our budget, with our commitment, with our travel. And they want to paint that image. I'm flattered that they want to paint the image. It means a lot. And the fee that we charge is not, is not significant, you know, unless it's somebody who's making a tremendous amount of money off of their art, you know, then it's just a percentage a small percentage, albeit, but there's some kickback out of respect for the creator of the image. I get people once in a blue moon who send me a direct message with a painting of one of my pictures. 
I had a guy this week send one who had wood burned a moose of mine into a big table. It's a beautiful table. Uh, it's on a, I had to forget the kind of wood, all natural. And he'd wood burn this moose in. And he put this nice comment, you know, based on, uh, was inspired and based on an image by Mark Raycroft. And you could see the moose. It's the same thing. It was an image. So I don't know how he created it. Did he do it by hand? Did he project it on? I don't know. But what was mentioned in there was that it was a commissioned piece. Never asked me, never approached me. He was under the impression if he just did a shout out, that's okay. Now he's made money. He didn't have to find that incredible bull moose or create that perspective. I would have happily worked with him and made an arrangement that was favorable and fair to both parties. This happens all the time on Instagram that has to be policed. Is please has to be watched for and educated about, but it's unavoidable because there's so many different people. It could be a kid who's starting to do art and he's 13 years old, or she is, and we don't know. You can't tell on Instagram, and they start painting or drawing pictures, and they didn't ask. There's a lot of education that's required, but I think that's the that's the social monster that Instagram is that way. But it's also very a very engaging platform. So it has its positives and negatives, but I get what you're saying. I, I, there's a new photographer, a young guy who went with a good friend of ours on a trip recently, and he's been posting very high quality images. And he's new to Instagram, and his stuff's getting shared and reposted, and he's thanking everybody. But I, I, from his perspective, he's new, he's trying to grow, and this is where it's at. Social media is how you grow and you say thank you. But from what you say, unless it's a big hub, like I'm talking half a million followers, it doesn't make a big bump in, in your own followers, I've found. You know, there are a few come in, but it's not a big win. I know a person who had one of her photos posted, or was a video, posted on the Instagram hub. And I thought this would catapult her into the stratosphere. It made it a significant difference, but it wasn't what I thought it would be considering the number. If you go and do hash and look up the Instagram hub, and I've, yeah, anyway, the number of hundreds of millions of followers, it's the hub, right? It's the, winning the lottery from somebody as far as an Instagram post being shared or repost to be on Instagram as far as the number of followers. But it didn't translate into a huge bump for her. So I think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying, Michael, that we shouldn't or aspiring photographers shouldn't necessarily seek out reposting on every hub because it doesn't actually translate into faster growth for their page. And I think you've got a very valid point that if they're putting up good photography, doing it consistently, using good hashtags, and, you know, all that strategy can be researched on YouTube or there's websites and read a bunch of them because no one has it right. Get some ideas. That's how to grow your page. And then the followers actually are there with you. But, you know, there's I do share work with big hubs that have asked, you know, or if others have asked, I appreciate being asked. But yeah, it's all it's all over the map, and and it's something about playing on Instagram. And I think not to go on much longer here, but that's the importance of watermarking, even if it's a subtle watermark, and not just putting the watermark at the bottom of the picture. To me, because to me, there's nothing more frustrating than my putting the watermark on the bottom of the picture, even if it's subtle and the opacity's lowered, and you know it. It's just saying that I took the time to create this image and it's copyrighted. That gets trimmed off by somebody and they don't credit. And then it bounces everywhere. 
all these other hubs buy so if I, or not buy repost it share it if it's a you know so it's so i make sure the watermark somewhere that if it has to compromise the image they don't cut it so at least that stays with the image if it starts bouncing around and there's some credit back to the originator the creator the artist the person the photographer you know, I, I feel it i feel it and that's that's instagram and you know you play your or you, don't you but it's gonna even with saying ask before reposting even if you said don't repost it'll still happen and there'll yeah. be those that don't do it with credit and if they don't credit then 100 percent i block if there's no credit that's done deal yeah. yeah and the ones that do credit you know you generally have to follow their rules you have to put their hashtag in and you have to follow them or whatever and what i do is i just don't do that you know i just don't make those images eligible right. for their pool of images and what's that do it means i'm not ever going to have an image on their site but i'm good with that it's right. fine i think they're like you said i think there's ways to grow your grow your page and i think instagram is good i think i hear stories all the time about somebody that got a job because they got their stuff seen on instagram or they sold sure. an image because it was seen on instagram so you've got to do it they're just i think you just need to be smart about it and you know, but it's my perception that I, anybody can do whatever they want to do. I just find it weird. Yeah, and I'll look, I'll come at it from a different perspective because, I mean, you guys know a year and a half ago, I didn't, I didn't have a single image up on Instagram. So it had pretty much zero except for, I think there were like a hundred, hundred and some friends of mine on Facebook that followed my Instagram page just because they knew it was me um, and getting on those hubs did initially provide a pretty big, pretty big bump. And it, I would only, and again, it was the ones that you, you tag and then they only take the people off because the, the tag is basically the permission. There was a guy reposted one of mine this week and, and he put his name on the bottom at that repost thing. There's a little repost window. He put his name in it. So I stopped following him. I blocked him for 24 hours, and and now we're done. I mean, I haven't blocked him now, but I'm not following him anymore. So you can block for 24 hours? You can, yeah, yeah. You can change anything. But I, I I'm watching him now. But I just, I made it. He got it because he stopped following me. It was just rude for him to put his name on the bottom of my image. My watermark was still there. It was one of my best elk images, and he, anyway, yeah. You can so in your settings, you just go into blocked. And then you can unblock and set oh, it back the way it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so initially it did provide for some growth, but I I just did the ones that tagged. I just tagged the ones that were the larger hubs. You know, I got I got featured on one that had I think one point one million followers on it. And that gave me a huge boost. Like uh, what? So What's a huge boost? What would you guess that number? Just uh, probably well, initially, I mean, I'm starting with less than 200, so that I gained like 350 people like overnight right. when that happened. Right but again, that's 350 out of 1.1 million. So percentage-wise, it's not a lot. And on, you know, like you, or you're over 20,000 percentage-wise, that's a drop in the bucket. But when I only had 200, and then overnight I'm more than doubling that, that was right. significant. Um, and you do weed them out as time goes on. So there's a couple that not only do they 
not give you credit, but then they stamp their own watermark on your your image. So that's an uh, immediate block. And some of those I did go on and say thank you. But that was number one because I tagged them. So I didn't really have any recourse there. Number two, going on and saying thanks for posting my image lets people know because they didn't put an active link to me or didn't even in their little narrative that lets people know that, you know, this is not their image. This is my image. And, and then, you know, lesson learned, shame on me. And then I block that hub and never tag them again, obviously. So there are times where you'll do that, but for, for a different reason, um, you know, it kind of allows people to interact with you when you throw that thank you on there, when you haven't been tagged initially. And then you just, you know, like I said, one time lesson learned and mm-hmm. never again. Yeah. So, I, and I, I, mean, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. And I think you can come at it from all kinds of different ways. For me, it just seems weird. And I just assume if I grow it 20 a week, yeah, I'm good with that. You know, just, and yeah, I don't put up my best stuff. So that's the other thing is I just, cause I'm mm-hmm. too worried about it getting stolen. I mean, I have a whole selection image that images that I won't put up there just because, you know, do you want to distill or dilute that image to the possibility of it going out everywhere and everybody taking credit for it? And there's and no so way to now, track it down. There's no way to slow it down. You exactly. just, it's gone. And that's, you know, I don't want to prolong this either or beat on a dead horse anymore, but I've been seeing a ton of, it shows where you're tagged. But then if you don't follow that person or if they have a private account, you can't see who they are or where it went. So I've had a ton of those lately. And I, you know, that's, that's one of those things that I'd like to be able to track it down, but you can't, all it shows is that you're tagged. So it'll tell you, it'll tell you that you were tagged in something. Okay. On your banner. Yeah. But you can't see who tagged you or what, what image it was or where it went. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So that's you know that on that the is save. Is, you talk about where they save them too. There's that. No. So when no, you post down on the little banner in the lower right hand corner, that right. shows that you've been tagged in an image, or somebody's. Yeah, that's that's where it shows up. But then there's no image in the list, so you know that it's a private account or, you know, right. they're sharing your stuff, but you can't see it. Right. And, I mean, and that brings up that saved image thing, too, which I do. I save people's images if it shows, not, not that I have any interest in the image, and it's totally permissible, but only if it says a location. So there might be 15 a year that I'll save because it's a great shot of a polar bear in a place on a special island that I know I can access. And it just is a memory. It's like putting a note saying, oh, yeah, I can get to that island. I might want to do that someday. But when I look at my pictures and I post a picture up and I see 212 people have saved it, it makes me wonder why. I mean, if they just like it, you know, I mean, that's cool. But that's a whole other level to what's what's it going on. And so there's another point is making sure the images posted are low resolution. I try to go as low as I can and still have them look good. I've noticed a couple of photographers who are uh, much bigger pages than you, than I do on Instagram have dropped their resolution to the point that it's almost grainy now. It's almost distorted, yeah. I've noticed that happen. For that very reason. Mm-hmm. So well, another person... thing that I should bring up is there are some people that will repost an image 
and they're building their site. One in particular, and I won't even mention who it is, but she will then go onto her story and highlight another image that doesn't pertain to her site, but she will highlight it and say, wow, check out this other image that came from blah, blah, blah. You know, so she's actually trying to pay it forward a little bit. So giving right. her exposure to some other images that may not have seen, which don't necessarily follow her page look, mm -hmm. you know, that's, for me, that's a, a win, right? You're, it's nice. You're getting yeah. exposed to that, that bigger audience. That's, that's courtesy, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if more people did that kind of thing, then I would be way more apt to want to play, you know? I'd be way more apt to, to want to mm -hmm. jump in. So there's all kinds of ways, and you can yeah. monitor as much as you can. You can do whatever you can. It's just, to me, I just thought it was worth, I don't know if people think about it that way, and everybody's in a different spot, so there's no right or wrong. There is for me, but not for them. Yeah, you have to keep in mind, though, that there's, there's going to be more and more and more Facebook influence on Instagram as they kind of move toward what they've done on Facebook. So your images are not going to be your images. I mean, you. I think almost posting the lower quality is is going to become the norm because of what has happened on Facebook, and you know a lot of photographers won't even post there anymore at all. Right. But now it's the same ownership, and and more and more and more you're seeing the same algorithms and making the same changes on Instagram. So it's 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 going to get a little bit more dicey in the future. So it's, if you want to maintain your images, if you want to maintain your copyrights, it, it may be something where that changes, um, it's tough on a personal level as well. So it's tough. Yeah. So lower resolution is something to consider, but it's tough not to play in the arena because you, you know, people do find you that way, you know, and it hasn't by any means been a windfall. In fact, it, it kind of owes me for my time still. But, <laughs> But it, uh, I, I've enjoyed meeting so many people on Instagram. I've, I've met people that I look forward to meeting in person. Um, and there have been sales generated through Instagram. And I have developed clients in other countries that I wouldn't have without Instagram. And I know that some of my existing clients are seeing a greater breadth of my portfolio than just a submission based upon a request once in a while. So that's beneficial. So there's benefits to it. It's just a bit of a... A concerning head scratcher at times about how it goes and and just the the ethics that surround it depend on the individual and their page and there's no consistent level for that and so we have to accept that and it harkens back to when I got into photography and and the fellow who was showing me some of the business ropes when I was sending out slides was like they can get damaged they can get lost but if you don't send them they won't publish and if you don't if you don't want to send them don't send them and get out of the business Social media is like that. It's something now. If you want to be on social media and potentially grow a reputation or get clients through it, then you have to play the game. But you want to do it smartly, and there's no guarantee. I, I'm, you know, and there's no guarantee of any monetary reward of any significance. We all hope for that. We hope the bigger the accounts get, and I'm, I'm optimistic that some of those photographers that have a million followers, you know, are doing well by it. We all hope for that, that we get to, you know, enough followers globally that appreciate our work and, and can help support our efforts and, and for what we do for our images, for our support, for our conservation efforts, everything. But 
it's hard to wrap your our head around it. I, I yeah, for sure. It's worth discussion discussing now and then. Sorry, but there's no right or wrong. But I, I hear you, Mike. It's it's a concern, and I when I see people thanking people for putting the picture up when it's not doing them any benefit, and they don't know them. You know, it's not like my cousin Josh putting a picture up because he liked my pic. He liked it. You know, I don't know who. You know, this is some guy or person I've never met. Right. I never will. Yeah, I never will. So, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I totally get that perspective. And, and I, I shy away from it myself in the same manner. Yep. You just got to be smart about it and then choose your path. Well, let's get Dale on this show. Let's let's have a flashback to what it's like. How old's Dale? Late 20s? 30s. He's in his 30s? Yep. Oh, he's close. All right. He's a pup. So I'd like to welcome Dale Evans to the podcast. Dale grew up in Florida, beautiful state. He served 10 years in the military and now is living the dream in the state of Montana. He's just graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Film and Photography. One of our first guests, and maybe our maybe our first guest, we'll have to go back and see who has a degree in photography. As far as I can remember, I think might might have been one other person, but this is fresh, just hot off the press, right? It was this year you graduated? It was uh, May 4th. Congratulations. Thanks yeah, congratulations. <laughs> and that's a pretty good school to graduate from too, right? Give us a little background on that school because it's very wildlife film oriented, isn't it? It, it is. Um, but with me doing more of like the photography side of things, uh, it's very much a, like a fine art thing. So I was able to kind of I, I think go outside the lines um, of a lot of things that they liked seeing, if that made sense. And because I wanted to show my outdoor lifestyle and wildlife photography, um, but it forced me to kind of do some fine art stuff. So, so it was, it was kind of cool to in a way blur the lines and get the professors thinking outside the box from their normal, I, I guess, you know, their, their normal thing that they're used to seeing. So did you combine fine art and wildlife for the most part when you had a fine art assignment or what did you do? Explain um, what, what, what you would have done for fine art. So for example, I mean like they, they consider themselves a fine art school as opposed to like university of Montana does more like the journalism side. So they wouldn't really handcuff us, I guess you could say for assignments. They would more tell us, you know, for example, they give us assignment of, um, tell us about depression and then you could go and do whatever you wanted to express through depression or uh, substance abuse or something like that you know what I mean and and then they would kind of just let you run wild wild and free from there so so it, it was nice because again you know like my background in wildlife photography I mean, that's the whole reason that I got into photography anyway um when I started going to school and everything, it actually made me bring it back into something that I really didn't know much about and kind of, uh, in a way, it forced me to learn light better. It forced me to learn, you know, studio settings and everything like that that I had never even touched before. So the, the degree had all aspects of photography then? you had Absolutely. Uh, we actually started, so, so the whole first year of the degree, you worked strictly with 35 millimeter film and in the darkroom. 
the entire first year. Uh, black Bill. and white stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, for the record, so was... I didn't bring film up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was cool because I had really never shot film other than shooting little disposable cameras when I was 12 years old. You know what I mean? So, and, and all I would do is just turn it in at CVS and hope that I get something back. Um, so going into that and, you know, only owning a DSLR at that time for about eight months, give or take, um, really got my wheels spinning and, and, and made me learn to understand light and understand how I was, you know, exposing all of this different stuff, as well as when I go into process the film and everything in the dark room, right? Like that I have to nail that and then nail my prints and, it, it just made it so much more technical. There's nothing more fun than processing black and white. And as you see that image appear, it's, it's pretty awesome. Right. Exactly. And, and being able to kind of play back and forth, you know, I mean, you, everybody's got it quote easy nowadays, right. With Lightroom, it's like, Oh, Nope. I can kind of bring it down a little bit. I can bring the, bring the slider up. It's like, okay, that's where I want it. Instead of waiting 15 minutes, right. For every single freaking print to come out and be like, Nope, miss the contrast, you know, or miss this, or or I overexposed it or underexposed it here, or gave it too much time, you know. It's just, it, it definitely, um, it opened my eyes a lot. So is that the? Do you think that's the purpose of them doing that? Is to make you focus on the technical aspects of the photograph before you take it, even even with digital? Absolutely, I I think that they're trying to slow everybody down. And really make them think about it and know that they only have 24 exposures, let's say, on a roll. And, you know, you only have to produce a triptych every single assignment. So you're given three images when you, when you turn in your images, but you got those 24. And, you know, some people would shoot three rolls for a single assignment. And I always tried to limit myself to, you know, I want to do it in one roll. And I would sometimes kind of cheat myself or not cheat myself, but like cheat a little bit and shoot it with my digital first to kind of get my exposure right there close. And then I would go over back over to film. But, you know, why not use the things that are available to you? Right. Absolutely. So what kind of film were you using? If it was black and white, was it T-Max or was it? Um, I shot a lot of T-Max 400. It was my favorite just because. I started shooting um, 125, and I'm, I think it was Ilford 125 was the one that I started with. But I always found myself that I wanted faster shutter speeds, and you know. But then I, I also would shoot T Max 400 and then push it to 800 because I started really enjoying pushing film, getting that little bit of grain in there, you know, and kind of doing all that. And 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 I had professors saying, "Oh, you can't push." T can't push T-Max at all. And I would push it sometimes even all the way up to six, uh, 1600. But so I, you like, better explain what pushing means. Cause I <laughs> doubt that a fraction of our audience would actually know what that means. So talking about pushing your ISO number, right? Um, say that the film is rated for 400 ISO. When you push it to that next stop of light at 800 ISO, you're pushing at one stop. And then I would even push it further to push it two stops at 16, uh, 1600. 
And then what adjustments do you make to make that happen? Actually, you adjust it like in the processing of the film. Well, you 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 yes, like so you can do it in camera, right? You can say that you're shooting at 1600, even though you have 400 uh, ISO film. And then you just shoot it however you would shoot it at 1600. And then you have to go into the dark room and process it like it's 1600 uh, ISO film, even though it's 400. So it's kind of, you know, it, it's kind of wonky when you first start to kind of work through it. But once that you learn how to do it, it's it's really cool that you can, you know, do things like that. Because, I mean, obviously, when, when I first started, I was like, okay, well, I got ISO 400 and... I hope I hope that it works out for me. You know what I mean, or ISO 125 or whatever it was. How hard was it to track down a film camera? <laughs> it actually is really easy in the program because it's kind of one of those. It just turns over, in a way. You you, you can check out some from the um, institution there, but most of the time, it's like as soon as people get uh, done with their first year of the classes, they're just turning around and selling them for 35 bucks or something like that, you know? And luckily I had a guy that was graduating the class. Um, that was also a fellow vet and he was graduating the film and photo department. The semester that I was starting in like full time in the film and photo department. Cause I actually started as a fish and wildlife major and did that for a year and a half and then changed over to the film and photo department full time, even though I was kind of doing it as a minor. But um, I changed over full time and he actually just handed me his old camera and was like, here, use this and, you know, give it back to me whenever you get done. So it was, it was actually really, really easy for me. So what was it? Nikon, Canon, Pentax, Minolta? It was a... Canon T3, I want to say. It was like a little Rebel, you know, film camera. So it was a more updated film camera rather than like the, what is it, the uh, Nikon F4, I think it was, or something like that. Yeah, Isn't that FM2 one of the older ones? Yeah. FM2. FM2 was the old manual. Okay. It was the workhorse. F4 yeah. was pretty advanced. F5 the F3 was. was pretty cool, too. Here we go down memory lane. <laughs> so, that's all I'm saying. I'm stopping there. Yeah. How many how many so, people were in your program, if you don't mind me asking? Is it a big program or um so it, it's actually kind of cool because we started with give or take fifty to fifty-five, I wanna say, that started that first year with me. And then you go through the first year and then you have to go up to what they call the gate and you have to submit a body of work to all the professors in the film and photo department and then they pick the top 35 of those and then they can move on to the next year and, and the reason they do that is because they want to keep the numbers kind of down that way that they're you know uh making it where they're giving you know most of the time the classes are only about 16 to 18 people in each class so if they can limit it to roughly 30 to 35 people getting through the gate, then they can kind of split those two groups up to have a morning class and an afternoon class for moving further along in the department. And then I graduated with, during my two senior theses last year, I had 16 students in my first senior thesis and I had 18 in my other one. 
And then I think eight actually graduated this year with me. Oh, so how cool is it to have the wildlife background and then how now you have the photography now it all kind of works together, right? Well, what I, what I, what I really feel like I got the most out of going through school and stuff like that is obviously it gave me four years to kind of put together a portfolio and really hone my skills before I got out into the real world again. Right. And start to try to make a living doing this thing. Um, but coming from the wildlife side and then going into that, you know, like I was kind of saying earlier is that it really, it, it forced me to get into the studio. It forced me to work lighting. I mean, it, it forced me to do so many things that I never would have touched if I was strictly doing a wildlife, you know, or, or out, you know, outdoor landscape, stuff like that. Like I just really wouldn't touch lighting because that's not my forte. And, and even to this day, you know, like I, I use lighting and it's more in my lifestyle images that I do, but you know, I, but I've been able to learn that stuff and, and, and figure out how I can transition it into my type of photography. So having been a wildlife photographer before, how much has it changed the way you see light in the field now? That, that That's a really good question. And it's, I think it's a tough question, you know, because I think that my eyes changed just because I was so fresh into photography regardless when I went into the program that I, that I've learned so much. I mean, I was already shooting in manual and everything like that prior to going into the program. Um, and like I said, I had literally owned a DSLR for eight months, give or take when I went into the program. Um, so I, I was already like, I was already ahead of the curb, if you will, because most of the students that come in there are literally just shooting auto and, and they feel like, you know, I feel like a lot of the students that get in there, their mom and dad said, Oh man, those are great photos. You know, like you should pursue this type of thing. Right. And, and everybody becomes a photographer. It's like the, you know, it's what Instagram has kind of become, right. Like in a way, but that's a thing for another day. <laughs> um, but I feel like a lot of students get into that and then they get there and they're like, Whoa, this is way bigger than I ever thought it was going to be having to transition into manual. But Going back to your question, I, I think that it, it makes me, one, push my limits of how I want to shoot the camera, and two, I try to look for those super dramatic scenes more often than just clicking the shutter. Yeah. I, I think it makes a huge difference when you, when you start paying attention to that. Right. And because it's so easy to click the shutter with digital, right? It's just... Right. You just throw it away if you don't spray you know. and pray. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's pretty awesome to have that background in, in, uh, just getting exposed to that kind of stuff. But in the podcast we did with Jason and, um, Harlan, mm -hmm. I had no idea Harlan's background was that, de that deep into photography. Right. And I actually didn't know that either until we shot together a year and a half ago, give or take, we actually went on a, on a sheep trip together and and met up and that was the first time that i really got to like sit down and hang out with harlan for two days and and it was funny because you know jason doesn't have that background where i was kind of just getting into like shooting eight by ten and uh four by six cameras and and stuff like that as well as well as 120 millimeter film so i was doing all of these things that 
he had done, you know, 20 years earlier. So we got to kind of geek out about that over dinner and everything. So it, it was really, really cool to kind of, again, get to know Harlan better and talk in depth about cameras rather than the sheep that we're shooting or anything like that. Right. I was just really impressed by the, the depth of experience and variety of experience that he had. Right. When he was outlining in that podcast. Yeah, he's super smart when it comes to that stuff, you know, and, and, and he shot a lot of landscapes and things like that, which I, I think even makes you better of a photographer when it comes to, you know, those big four by six and eight by 10 cameras and everything like that. So I think it's a different skill set. I mean, there's certainly overlap as far as reading light, but landscape composition and photography is quite different than wildlife. To be able right. to do both well is a rare talent. Absolutely. So how much crossover do you have into video or is it all are you predominantly stills i'm a predominantly still guy but i'm getting more into video i'm kind of forcing myself more into video you know we, we were kind of alluding to me quitting a job and stuff like that so I, I i just actually recently took a position that i'll be doing a lot more video as well as photography can you talk about it yeah absolutely i can what is it um, so I'm going to be a videographer and photographer on Randy Newberg's team for Fresh Tracks TV. Oh, good. I so. was just up with those guys a couple of months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, we were doing some podcast stuff. Awesome. Well, I guess how much do you feel like video is taking over because of the internet and that's why you were moving that direction? Or do you think, you know, cause I'm a videographer, but I still like stills more. Right. I, there's nothing like capturing that one single image. I, you know. I 100% agree. I, I think that it is much di more difficult to tell a story with a single image than it is with a video because you have so much motion and, and sound and everything else, right? Like, um, So I think that it always comes back to me personally that if I can capture a single image that you know, tells everything that I want to tell, then I've nailed it, right? But talking about what you're saying with uh, doing more video, I don't think that I would have. I think that I wanted to play with it and kind of force myself to do more of it just because I would like to have I would like to have it in my portfolio. I'd like to have it in my library and stuff like that. And when you're out, you know, hanging out with sheep or or elk or anything like that. Right. Like you, you never know when you're going to get this just really cool, crazy stuff happen. But I always find myself clicking the shutter before I even think about doing a video. I think for modern day success, the most, the best option is covering both bases, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as far as the job that you're going to start out with, I mean, to be able to present both media is a big deal. You know, simplifies it for the client. There's a lot of appeal for that rather than just being a still or video. So I think it's ideal to to learn both nowadays. Yeah, and and I 100% agree. And and in the film and photo department, we were, you had to kind of meet the requirements of, we had to do at least five video film classes as well, but they were pretty basic. It was kind of, you know, like, this is how you shoot, like, just look at the lighting this way. This is how you work premiere, you know, very, very basic things, not, um, you know, nothing crazy. And then like for final projects, we'd have to put together like a five minute video, something like that. And, uh, you know, the professor would give you a quote script, if you will, or like, this is the storyline that we want you to kind of do. And then you'd get together with 
three other classmates right and most of the time you'd be the models as well as trying to do the video and everything else right just regular school projects but that was very early on because like you basically knocked that out in your first year and a half and then you're just strictly photo after that you know unless you're obviously doing more of the film side right and like the same thing goes for the guys that are doing the film they're forced to do i think it's four classes of photo or something like that but they're mostly doing video stuff i think it's easier to take the time to do that when you've you know like you said you've you've built a portfolio now and pretty extensive one so it's easier to think about taking the time to get a video clip when you know you've got you've got that image but now you can catch that behavior in motion right and, and kind of like mark said have it both ways so i well, think as you progress it's it does get easier to flip that switch and go Right. And, and, and I think that what well, I was going to say was I think that the one thing that like Jason and Harlan are doing super smart, right, is always having their video head on their tripod so they can go straight into that mode if they want to, where I'm mostly just running a gimbal head. So if if I had my way, I think that I would slowly transition that just, in, you know, for the just in case type of thing. So does yeah. me having your way, does that mean if your pocketbook is ready to buy all that equipment? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like, do, do I want to make, do I want to make that jump? You know what I mean? Like, right. and just kind of, and carry more stuff. And, you know, it's just, just playing around with more stuff. Right. And being a quote broke college kid, right. Like coming out of college and everything like that and not having my feet quite under me yet is, um, you know, a little different. Should have, alluded to in the introduction too is that you are a talented photographer you clearly developed a great eye through your schooling and maybe even before that but i've known of your work for i believe three years practically because of social media this connecting world on instagram right and from the beginning close to the beginning when i started i found your page and vice versa and and i've really enjoyed that and so i just want to direct our listeners so they can easily find you the link will be in our show notes but it's Restless Soul Photography, but your website, if I remember correctly, is Restless Soul Media. So actually, it's it's swapped. So my website is RestlessSoulPhotography.com. Okay. And then I just recently changed, you know, again, going back to that whole wanting to do more video stuff, and I kind of wanted to give leave my options open, right, and not put me strictly down that photography path. Um, I changed it to Restless underscore Soul underscore Media. Now, I think it's a great marketing angle. I'm always torn about that. If somebody's putting their name out there, that's one thing. But to come up with a company name, a business name, a direction, you know, sometimes can have a better hook for people to remember. And Restless Soul Media, or photography for that matter, I think is great. Can I ask where it sparked from? Uh, you know, it, it's funny. And, and I kind of, when we talked about doing this podcast, I, I thought that you might ask that question. With my military background and... Even when I was a kid and stuff like that, I just love to travel. Um, I hate sitting still. I mean, I would just, I literally just got back from a photo road trip three hours ago where I just up and, you know, ran right. six hours south this weekend and stuff like that, right? So I've just always been on the go and, and it's just my personality. And then when I, you know, going back to the military, um, through my 10 years in the military, there, there was a three year time lapse that I literally slept in my own bed for less than three months out of that three years. So I've just always been, quote, restless. So so it just kind of 
it fit right when, when, when I first started even doing photography and wanting to kind of transition into making a name and, and building a brand and stuff like that for whatever reason that just clicked for me that's yeah, memorable that's and I mean for many of us to travel is to experience life right right it's hard to be static and just sit still for extended periods well, I mean, and, you know, you even talked about it in, my, in the introduction, right? Like I started out in Florida and and everything like that. And now I, I moved to Wyoming and, you know, now I've moved to Montana. And it's just I, I always just want to explore new places and go and see new things. And like I said, be on the go. And now with the new job and everything, right, like it's just going to be more travel and everything. So it's going to be more kind of right up my alley. And I'm super excited about it. That's awesome. So that being said, what what we kind of talked about this a little bit when we were up in the park, but what brought you to Wyoming from, you know, being from Florida and just finishing up? So in 2009, my stepdad was um, working slash running a ranch out around Alcova area, and he invited me out. And I was kind of in between deployments at the time. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. So I, I went out to Wyoming and, and hung out for, I think it was 10 days. And it was kind of summertime. So we were fishing and just exploring the property and the Pathfinder Ranch down there. Yeah. So it's huge, right? There's 700,000 acres, I think it is, or something like that, even more. So I, I was just able to explore this wild place that I'd never been to. I'd never even been out west before, um, other than like California, which I don't really consider that you know, the West. So we, you know, we, we get out there and, and, and I, and it was just so cool. And I, I went back and I turned around and I deployed two months later. And while I was on that deployment, my stepdad, you know, we're, we're talking over Skype and stuff like that. And he's like, you should put in for an elk tag out in Wyoming. And I was like, Oh, that'd be cool. You know? So I was like, you know, Southern boy, like never hunted elk or anything like that before, but always dreamed of it. I was like, I'd love to do that. So I put in for an elk tag and first year I draw. So that coming September, I went back out to Wyoming and hunted elk for 21 days or actually hunted for 15 days and killed my first bull on my 15th day. And I, I, it was in my blood from there on out and turned around next year. I put in for a tag again. I actually went home, deployed again in December, put in for an elk tag again, got drawn again. You know, it was kind of luck of the draw, right? Went back out another 21 days, killed my bull on the 13th day that time. So now I'm just like completely hooked. And I was like, when I get out of the military, I am moving out West. I don't know where the hell I'm going, but I'm going out West. And, um, I got out in March of 2014 and May 1st of 2014, I had all my stuff packed up in a trailer and literally just up and moved across the country and moved to Laramie at first. And I was just, I was, I was, you know, hooked ever since, I guess you could say. How long before you went to, was that before you went to school? Like, were you filming and taking pictures then too, or is it more just exploring the outdoors and animal experiences? No, um, I, I never had even touched a DSLR. Because it was eight, eight months before school, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. And so, so I, I moved out to Wyoming, and while I was out there, I bought a little cheap camera, kind of more like a point-and-shoot type of camera. And I was like, I just want to share Canon? photos. 
Was it a I think, I, I think it was a Nikon. And I mean, I can't really say too much, right? I, I was should, just trying should... to be funny and throw a curveball out there about branding. Yeah. <laughs> well, all, it's funny, right? Because I've done Nikon and then I jumped to Canon sure. and then I came back to Nikon. So, you Fair know, enough. it's whatever, right? I mean, you can run all of them. I, but I bought a little point and shoot and it was more of just like taking photos and sharing stuff with my friends and family back east that had never seen any of this stuff before in their life and more than likely would never see it. So I just started doing that and then... I guided in Kansas over that fall, and it was just kind of, once again, experience in life, right? I was kind of taking elite, a gap year, if you will, in between the military and then getting back into the real world. And I I just played around with that point and shoot, and while I was in Kansas or right there around the time I was getting to Wyoming, something like that, I went out and I bought an actual decent camera. I bought a Canon 70D with a... I think it was like a Tamron 18 to 300 or something like that on it. And, um, and I was like, you know, it's cool because now I have all this range. Like I can do landscapes, I can do wildlife photography, you know, I've got crop sensors. So I have some, you know, a little bit more range and, and I just started taking photos and while, and, and this is probably June of that year, I think it was. About that time, I started looking into going to college or, or going back to school because I had a little bit of school from the military and everything, but going back to school. And that's when I looked into Montana State. I was actually up in the park for a weekend. I think it was like Fourth of July weekend or something like that, just hanging out, you know, riding around, taking photos. And I stopped in Bozeman for a night and, you know, saw signs from Montana State University and everything. And, and I was like, wow, that'd be a really cool place. So I went home started kind of researching it and I was like, man, they've got a really awesome fish and wildlife program. So I applied and like I said, this is like July 4th, I think it was July 7th, something like that. And I, I applied the next week, found out that I got accepted. I think it was the end of July, give or take. And it's like, okay, cool. School starts August 18th. So I had just over two weeks to find a place to live pack all my stuff and move to Bozeman from Laramie. So again, you know, I was like, all right, well, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Was it, was it all those days in the field hunting? So if you're out there for a couple of weeks, you have, you know, aside from the getting the meat and the bull for yourself, there's all the other experiences that have unfold, right? Was, Absolutely. Was that and, part of the spark of the interest in going into fish? and wildlife or did that also spark your interest in photography what you well, encountered i i think a little bit of both like I've, I've always been in the outdoors ever since my, my stepdad started taking me hunting and fishing when i was five years old so i was always outdoors i mean even in florida like you know if if it was summertime we, we had a center console boat and, and we were offshore fishing every single weekend if it was fall, then we were in the woods. If it was spring, we were in the woods turkey hunting, something like that. So we were always outdoors. So that, I mean, it always sparked that fish and wildlife thought. And and I wanted to do something like that. I knew that I wanted to be around wildlife as much as I possibly could. And I was and and I truly thought that was my avenue. But as I got into the fish and wildlife program and starting to learn about all these plant species and things like that, I was like, this isn't what I want to do. I was like, I just want to hang out with wildlife. Like, how can I just hang out with wildlife? And, you know, the photography was kind of starting to take hold at that time, you know, and I was getting, 
I was getting a little bit better. I was getting, you know, starting to kind of grow a following and people were starting to, you know, quote, want images and, you know, it's kind of that first little taste of success, if you will. And I was like, well, maybe I, maybe I do have this, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I've got an eye for this. Maybe people do like my stuff. So that's when I transitioned and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this full time. And, and I truly think that I can, you know, if I bust my ass, I can make something out of this. So I, you know, transitioned it. And you couldn't have picked a better school to pursue that either, because you're right there close to the park on a, even a short weekend or even after class, you run down to the, to the park, find a bear or find elk, bison, whatever. Right. To, to be a hundred percent honest, I used to set up my schedule in the fall where I didn't have a class until noon. So I could go to the park in the morning, even though it's an hour and a half drive, I would get up at four 30 in the morning be at the park by 6 a.m., start getting daylight. I'd photograph elk or, or, you know, whatever was right there, but mostly elk, you know, in September and October. I'd photograph elk, and I'd be like, okay, i got to leave the park by 10. I can get back. I can change clothes real quick, and I can still be to class by noon, and I'm good. So so I was already – I mean, and this is even when I was doing my fish and wildlife stuff. So it was kind of like that passion is is so strong for this that I've got to pursue it. Mm-hmm. You're a kindred spirit, man. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I was like that. So I, I did my degree in wildlife biology, and there was no guarantee about where I'd be sent to research what. Where's the funding? Where Where's what's required, right? And I always make the joke when I'm giving a talk or a presentation. You know, I was into the big charismatic megafauna. We call it the big antlered animals and the predators and stuff. But if the government needed research on shrews, that's where I was going, right? Right. Then I met a, a wildlife photographer, and it was like, bang and i did the same thing it was i even took terms off to photograph and i had jobs where i'd I'd line it up so i could be out for sunrise and try and photograph whitetails and that kind of experience and it's that passion it's that drive that you know there's there has to be an eye Uh, and it still can be trained i believe but that passion and drive is something that is required for success in this field you know in addition to the talent that separates so many people right a lot of people have especially with the, the capabilities of digital camera equipment, can build a portfolio. But to have that passion and drive, that outgoing spirit make is a, is a game changer. Well, and to have those people that w- want to get up at 4.30 in the morning, right, and drive and, like, I know that I can only photograph for two hours, but that two hours could, you know, be the best two hours of my life. So I might as well get up and go do it, you know, because, like, you're only getting older. Your, your days are limited. So might as well get out there and just go do the thing. So speaking of that, without giving specifics away, you went on a trip last year to a location. Well, I mean, we can say Alaska. I Was that the first time you were in Alaska? It was the first time I'd ever least... been to Alaska. And I had been dreaming of Alaska since I was 10 years old. I mean, Montana is beautiful. Wyoming's beautiful. Florida, Absolutely. in many ways, is as well and has a lot of wild space. But I could see this ladder. I could see because I feel right. it. I've always had that <laughs> pull, that pull to the north, yeah. the far north. I just, I, I, it's like a bungee cord. I go and I come back and I just get sprung back up again. Now that you've tasted it, you've, you've experienced that. I, I have you got the bug? I, I got the gist from Instagram, from social media that you guys worked hard at it. You had some success. I, I've seen the success. You hoped for more. And some trips are like that and some aren't. But that aside, 
once you get back. And, and some trips I've done to Alaska or the Yukon have been frustrating with results, but other ones have made up for it tenfold, right? You, you never know what's going to happen. So after this trip, how are you feeling about that? Is it, do you have the bug? Did you? I, absolutely. It's it's funny. I've been trying to talk my fiance into moving to Alaska. And, and I even told her when we first even got together that I wanted to move to Alaska. My whole goal before we met and everything like that, you know, um, a couple of years ago was that I'm, I'm going to graduate from school. I'm moving to Alaska and I'm moving up there for a minimum of five to seven years. And I'm going to do everything that I can up there. And then if, if I hate it, I'll move back to the lower 48. If I love it, I'm staying was always kind of my thought process and, and going forward, um, after school, things kind of change, right. With life and everything. And obviously there's a reason that I'm in Montana right now and, you know, things are progressing, but I'm dying to get back up to Alaska. I, I I've loved it. I mean, that was an extremely miserable trip. It was, it was, <laughs> we, it was, it was hot. It was cold. It was snowing. It was sleeting. It was raining. You know, it was everything that Alaska could give you, which made it miserable and not a lot of wildlife encounters for the 12 days. I think that we were there and I mean, you're just, you're wet all the time. You know, we were sleeping in tents and everything like that. And I was sleeping in my own tent while the four other guys that I was with all had these big luxurious tents and everything. And I was like, I'm just bringing my little like solo tent that I, you know, hunt out of all the time. Right. Like I'm not bringing this 60 pound freaking wall tent essentially. So I was a little bit probably, I mean, they had cots, you know what I mean? Like they, they were living luxuriously. You put your thermorest on the cot, buddy. That's what you do, right? right. It's not just the cot. You need the thermorest for insulation. I, and I, I think they had that too. You know, I mean, they had like, you know, zero degree sleeping bags. I had like a 30 degree sleeping bag. I mean, I, I went light. Like I, I'd literally treated or yeah, treated it like it was a hunt. I mean, I packed out a bag and I was like, okay, I'm good for 10 days. They didn't you know, tell you you could drive to the campsite with the gear. You don't have to. You don't have to carry all your camping gear on your back. Yeah, I mean, news to me, right? So, <laughs> but I, but I was ready to go. I mean, like these guys are like, this is what we're doing, you know. But then it was kind of one of those things that I think I was a late addition to the to the group as well. So that kind of maybe changed it. But you know, it's like you got two guys in this tent and two guys in this tent. So it's like, well, I'm. I'm by myself. Like, I guess I could sleep in their tent if I want to sleep on the floor or find a spot, but it's like, I can just bring my own tent. But in saying all that, like it was a super miserable trip and we didn't have a lot of images until the last day when I busted my butt to go after the sheep. Right. And it's like, I got the, I think I got the coolest images of the whole trip, you know, for everybody because I dropped. Yeah, in a way, exactly, right? It was like, and then maybe it was me being a little bit younger and a little bit of, um, you know, like I came all the way to Alaska, like I, because we couldn't tell they were sheep up there. All we could see was just white dots. We didn't know if they were sheep or mountain goats. But at the same time, I was like, why not go? But we couldn't tell if they were rams or just, you know, ewes and lambs or what. So we didn't have a spotting scope or anything like that to be able to really tell. And I was like, you know, it's only a few miles and straight uphill. Why not? <laughs> yeah, but you start you start up there at about two thousand feet, so you live you live higher every day than that is at the top, right. right? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't I don't really know how high I was up in elevation, but um, 
just have to keep yeah. telling yourself that Five, as you climb. Feet the top. Yeah, and, and Bozeman right here, I think we're at like 4,600, give or take. No so. kidding. Oh, you're right there. Yeah, it's not too bad. And I mean, the, the hike wasn't home bad. Home sweet home. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to, to me personally, the hike wasn't bad. You know, I took I took one long lens because I was like, well, I'll probably get within 50 or 60 yards of these sheep, and I'll just take my one long lens. Of course, you know, I get a little bit luckier than that. So um, I wish I would have had a different lens as well. But, yeah, I mean, overall, the hike wasn't bad, and, and it was funny because I stayed up there for probably two hours you know, and had absolutely no contact with anybody. And these guys are like freaking out because we'd already seen a lot of bears and, you know, kind of, we didn't really have any bear encounters, but we were trying to photograph moose. And like, all of a sudden we see a bear on the next ridge top. So then we'd have to kind of like try to go around him or something like that. So they were kind of freaking out that I was going to go by myself. And I was like, I've got my bear spray, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll regret it if I don't make this hike. So Everything worked out really well. You know, everybody has to make their own decision on that kind of adventure. Right. But I've, never, I've never regretted the hike. I would never have had, like I've said on probably one of our first podcasts, a fraction of the experiences in wilderness that I've had if I personally held back. Absolutely. So, you know, with common sense, with safety in mind, with, you know, watching the day and the weather and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's how you, you discover things. You know, I've gone after a small bull moose or a small caribou and, spent two hours with it and all of a sudden there are six more caribou show up and then right. two more hours with a whole bachelor group of stunning bulls and it wouldn't have happened if i if i stayed with my peanut butter and jam sandwich <laughs> right well and, and the thing yeah. is that in alaska is you can't stop and say oh, i'm not gonna do it if it's raining right you gotta go because it'll change by the time you get there it probably is gonna stop and absolutely you just gotta do it and then the, well, the awesome images come when it's pretty crappy out anyway Right. Yeah. So, well, and it was like super foggy, you know, and like the fog was kind of rolling in and like those sheep were just staying right there around that fog line. So like you'd see them for a little bit and then you'd lose them. And then, you know, again, I was just like, I'm just going to do this. And, you know, Jason and Harlan, because I, I was kind of riding in their vehicle most of the time. And they're just like, I, I just don't think that there's any good rams up there. You know, like I think that they're lambs and ewes. And I was like. I told myself that coming to Alaska, the one animal that I wanted to photograph was a doll sheep. So I was like, even if it is lambs or ewes, I could probably still make cool images with lambs and ewes. So why not? Especially with the weather. Yeah. Right. So, so far to date, what's your favorite image? I mean, I was just looking through your Instagram. I was just looking to see if you had any stuff from Florida, but it makes sense that you don't because you kind of got into it more when you were out here. But out of all these images, what's your favorite? Oh man, that's that's difficult. Or what? Uh, you don't even have to have a favorite. Just like what stands out in your mind? What stands out in my mind? So something that Mark said just a minute ago about the hike's always worth it. Um, my parents were out visiting me a little over two years ago, and I was like, "Hey, I know where some sheep are. Do you guys want to go check out some sheep?" And they're like, "Absolutely, yeah." So I didn't tell them that we we're going to have to hike up, you know, a little ridge top and get up on this plateau and blah, blah, blah. Like I was just, you know, I, I tried I tried to just like set the hook before and get them in the truck and like, let's go before we can get, you know, that far along. So anyway, we we, we go out, um, park the truck and I was like, all right, so we're just going to walk, you know, right over here and then we're going to get up on that plateau over there. 
there's been some sheep hanging out on the backside that you just you can't find them unless you just get up there with them. And they're like, we're going to hike over there. And I was like, yeah, it's like, it's only two and a half miles. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that bad. So anyway, we head out and, um, start hiking, you know, and, and they still live in Florida. Like my whole entire family lives in Florida, but they still live in Florida. So they're flatlanders and we're at give or take 7,000 feet, I'd say up there. And, we hike, you know, we take our time, you know, we go around the backside of the ridge, we get up on top of this plateau and we start looking around and I was like, okay, I'm going to make a loop. I was like, you guys, you know, catch your breath, kind of regroup everything. I'm going to make a loop around the big plateau and I'll come back and find you or, or you just stay right here, you know, and I'll come back to you and I'll just make a circle around, but I'll go find the sheep and then I'll come get you and we'll, I'll bring you over to the sheep. Okay, cool. So I make the loop. And as I'm coming back around, can't find the sheep anywhere, by the way. And as I'm coming back around, I come up over this ridge and I know that they're give or take, you know, in this general direction. As I come up over the ridge, here's a sow grizzly with a, a cub of the year, like 80 yards below me. And I was like, oh, crap. You know, so I kind of ease off and I was like, well, I need to find my parents. Cause again, like they have one can of bear spray between the both of them. I have one can of bear spray. I was like, I need to get to them and you know, at least like let them know. And as I'm walking over there, they're like making these, like they're putting their hands up, like trying to make these quote bear, you know, like there's a bear over here. Cause I guess that they had seen her before I had seen her and they were just watching her from where I had left them. And they were 175 yards away from her and, you know, downwind. Like, she never even knew that they were there. So I go back and I was like, yeah. And, like, as I'm walking back, they're like, there's a bear. There's a bear. You know, like, they're, like, whispering to me. I was like, I know. Chill out. Like, it's fine. You know, it's it's a common common occurrence, right? So we kind of watch her from give or take. 175 you know maybe 150 yards away and they kind of feed and do their thing and they go up over this next ridge and i was like okay well as they go up over that next ridge we're going to go to that ridge that i was on and then we're going to just kind of watch them and i'm going to see if i can get in a position that i can you know maybe get to that 100 yards mark give or take and get some photographs of them they're like okay you know are you sure about this my mom's absolutely freaking out at this point because this is the first time that she's ever seen a grizzly in the wild and you know, of course, it being a sow and a cub. So anyway, we get to that ridge and they kind of get up on the ridge and they're feeding along and then they go over that ridge. And I was like, OK, let's, you know, move up a little bit further. Like we gave them 10 minutes or so and they kind of we could see that they were, you know, feeding over the ridge and off. I was like, all right, let's get up to that next ridge. So as we're kind of easing up there, I they were staying about 15, 20 yards back. And as I eased up over the ridge. I could see the sow's back and I was like, and I'm like looking and I kind of ease up a little bit more. Like I so said, my parents are back and everything like that. I was like, you guys just stay here until I figure out where they're at. And again, the wind's in my favor the whole time. Like she never even had an idea that I was there, but as I kind of ease up and like see her, I was like, all right, where's the cub at? We're, we're, we're kind of getting into some tight territory, if you will. But of course, like I kind of ease back and like I walked back down to my parents. I was like, so they're just over the ridge. And my mom's like, all right, we got to get out of here right now. We got to get out of here. I was like, well, I've got to take some images. And like, we're, we're, we're at this point. So I kind of ease up along. And I was like, you guys can ease up 
behind me, but just, you know, stay behind me. And if she starts coming, just dive off the edge of this freaking cliff. Cause we're kind of on that plateau. <laughs> and I was like, if, if she's coming, you guys come off. Like you've got your bear spray. Like I'm going to, I'm going to spray her. You know, we kind of went through the game plan of like, this is what's going to happen. If, if she makes a move. So, um, I kind of ease up. I start taking photos of her. She's feeding like the cubs feeding the cub walks over to her. And I don't remember what happened. If the, I I'm, I'm almost positive. The wind kind of just swirled on me and hit and hit the back of my neck. And when I did, I could see the, see her kind of like pick her nose up, but she didn't, she didn't instantly get it. You know what I mean? Like she just kind of got a small little whiff. And then about that time, like I'm just, you know, continuously taking photos the whole time I was behind this rock and about that time, the cub stands up and starts looking like right in my direction. So I'm like going right in on the cub, like photographing her um, or it standing up and everything like that. And all of a sudden she kind of stops and she looks back and she sees that the cubs alerted and standing up and looking at me. And then she stands up and she's just, you know, she's she's trying to figure out what's there, but she just can't make me out. So I, I'm snapping away, snapping away, you know, and it's like, God, I hope the shutter's quiet, you know. I mean, there's no idea and having that cub. And I'm snapping away, and then she goes down, and she kind of feeds again. And and she actually stood up three different times in that time because, like, the, I, I swear the wind was just swirling a little bit. And afterwards, so she goes down completely fine. She ends up feeding off. I, you know, get my images that I kind of, came for if you will i got more than i even bargained for i come back to my parents and i was like well that was kind of cool and they're like well where is she at i was like oh she's still right up there and my mom's like we got to go now like she's like all we could see was her head pop up every once in a while i was like oh yeah she was standing up she was trying to figure out what we were and she just like about lost it so needless to say we ended up going over the edge and like slipped off so that's probably one of my more memorable experiences okay. on a crazy tangent there, but now, so is, is that the one where she's, she's standing and you got that this totally sweet background on the sagebrush Ridge. Is. I think it that is. is. So, yep. so that's the that's cub. The cub stand. Yeah. Yeah. That's the cub standing up. And I just posted that for the first time and, you know, I don't know, six, eight months ago or so. I don't even remember when I posted that, but the, the sow and the, the sow standing up, I posted that year and a half ago, give or take. Yeah. And I think that's the first image that I really, that I started to follow <laughs> your, yeah, that was, that was an awesome shot. Sweet. I thanks. mean, for a, for a lower 48 grizzly shot, that's, it had everything you wanted background behavior, you know, she's, she's standing and, and good light. So yeah, right. that was a fantastic shot. Thank you. And and you can't even see the cub in it, right? So like I didn't even really talk about the cub or anything like that when I when I posted the image and 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 then that's why, you know, it, it kind of worked out because then I could post the individual cub standing. Beautiful light. Amazing image back backdrops phenomenal. Thank you. Who's going to say it though? <laughs> Somebody's got to say it. I'm not going to say it. You're not going to say it? Mike, are you going to say it? No, you go right ahead. Do not do this at home. <laughs> well, we weren't at home. We were out in the woods. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm not pointing the finger at you, Dale. Everybody, 
Everybody over the age of 18 can make their own decisions about what they do. But as far as, you know, and familiarity, and I don't know that grizzly bear or, or the specific area where you're in. Maybe they're used to a lot of people. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for that information either. But it's just something, I mean, man, you, it worked out big time. Absolutely. It worked out to your favor. There was no issue with the bear. And, and truly, I mean, go to Dale's Instagram page and look at those. Those are worth seeing. Amazing photographs. Thank you. The image is phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. But you're young. Right? <laughs> here's, here's, here's another game changer. I'm going to throw a curveball out there just as far as a life, life experience. And for better, well, can't even say it that way. Once you become a dad, that stuff all changes too, right? <laughs> you know, as far as things I used to do as a young man before having kids, somehow physio physiologically we get the roadmap changes. And just, uh, but that, those pictures are phenomenal. Great light. And, and the fact that you were at that elevation and then a little bit lower it looked like too was cool. Good story. Don't do it at home. Good story. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um about the closest that I've had for the, for photographic encounters um, with grizzlies. I've actually had closer encounters when I'm hunting with them, you know, and, and that's kind of when it's, to me, that's almost scarier in a way. I don't know why, but I, I think a lot of it has to do is, you know, you're almost like being extra quiet and you're doing things like an animal, right? That, 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 yeah, that, that stealth, right? Right. Yeah. You're being a lot more stealthy and you're acting like the prey that they're, you know, going to be feeding on and stuff. So having encounters with grizzlies when I'm in the elk woods or deer woods or anything like that almost freaks me out a little bit more than when I have a camera in my hand for whatever reason. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Well, and there's plenty of places you can go and photograph brown bears grizzly bears mostly brown bears where you can get that close and it's not a True. problem you know so right. you really got to pick and choose your places for the lower 48 though that that's a stellar image you just it's hard to get and you have to be in the right situation and you have to know what you're doing and that's i think think where that biological background comes into play and you can kind of read behavior and that's right. why you say not everybody can do that don't just think you can go do that without having any kind of clue as to what's going on because you would know if you could stick around or not. You know, yeah. You, and, and well, and that was one of the first things that I was doing is like, I was trying to read her. Like she was completely calm. You know, she was, she was feeding everything like that. And I, I, I wanted to wait until that cub was back up with her. Cause I didn't want that cub close or even the halfway mark. Right. Because I knew the first thing she's going to do is try to get in front of that cub. So I wanted to read her and just watch her feed. And, you know, again, having the wind in my favor and everything like that. I mean, you know, for the most part, I don't think that she ever even knew we were in, you know, the world like around her. I think that she got a whiff of something, but she couldn't figure out what it was. And that's what saved me. You know what I mean? Yep. So what about, I don't know if I can spin on another story, whether we should do another story, but the caribou stuff that you got in central Alaska, there weren't numbers, but it was a really nice bull that despite the weather and stuff, it seemed to turn out well. Yeah, and and that was another one of those like the the hike was worth it. Saw that bull a few miles off, and it was kind of one of those. We, I think we'd been there for right at two or three days at that point, and hadn't hardly gotten anything, you know, anything worth doing. And I, I don't think we'd even photographed a caribou at that point. 
and um you know i was like i'm i'm going one way or the other you know if you guys are coming cool if not like drop me off and i'll be back in four hours or something like that you know like i'll figure it out so those guys ended up deciding to make the trek with me and and it worked out really really cool and and for, for the first encounter with the caribou, you know, other than just seeing them on hillsides and stuff like while we were driving, um, but like first photographic experience, it was really cool just to watch them. And that bull actually, I mean, you know, because we closed the gap on him and got him to give or take 300 yards or so. But then I think he could kind of see we were there. And then he actually started just coming closer and closer to us to investigate, you know, and, and I think that it at one time we had him at maybe 70 yards is about the closest that we got, but it, but it worked out really nice because, you know, we had really cool landscape behind him that we could use and, and everything like that. So, so it really, really worked out the way, you know, he worked in there and, and seeing us. And again, like being able to see all the different behavior that he gave us in that hour and a half, you know, uh, experience with him. Well, that's a big part of it, right? Not just the images that you take away, but to have that time. That's one of my favorite places on planet Earth to be is just spending a day with caribou. It's right. a combination of that landscape and the animals and just being at peace there and, and just observing and, and photographing. The whole experience is what it's about. Right. That's Absolutely. part of the thing about that very north that hooks me in. I just, I don't know, just brings me down and a week a week or 10 days and it's it's a changed person from the manic world of marketing and and promotions and editing and shoots and stuff to to that rhythm right yeah absolutely i mean you know like i said 12 days wasn't enough for me and i'm looking forward to the next time that i can hopefully get up there right well, i'm looking forward trip. to you getting up there full time too so then we can pick your brain <laughs> oh so you guys want me to just move up there Somebody's okay. got to take the jump. Gotcha. Might as well be you, Dale. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you talk to Kara about that. You got the new job, so you got to work with that. But exactly, you know, there's certain flexibilities that you might have. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, maybe um, you know, you never know. The new job might take me up there and get to do some things. Right. Oh. There could be some outdoor experiences out there for sure. Absolutely. I got to know about this image right here. <laughs> sorry i shouldn't be laughing i just yeah that's so it was magical i don't know if you know this but down there around where you live there is a small herd of unicorns that you oh. can photograph so you just got to get to the right space i think it's over fourteen thousand feet so. so that's an assignment for our listeners go to dale's page and you can find the unicorn you can't find the unicorn. And if you hike enough, you can find unicorns as well. I think that could be the wrap-up of the... I mean, that's the whole thing that we're talking about, right, Mark? Is like the hike is always worth it. You can, you never know. You can find unicorns. Well, big or small, you'll find something. You know, right. you'll enjoy the fresh air. It's good physical workout. And then Michael Morrow finds... I saw that. Big... <laughs> he didn't tell me about that, and he started posting it. We've been joking for years. You know, that's that's the end game. Right. We get that. Right. Would, and we're out. I've often joked I was kidnapped for two months by them, but I have no images to prove because they broke <laughs> my cameras. But and then he comes up with these, these magical shots. I totally forgot about those shots is what happened. And I just was 
you know what happens is you start looking for i gotta put a new picture on instagram so then now with my amazon prime i don't know if i've got everybody on this train yet but i can be anywhere and i can look for images to throw on so i just was flipping through images on amazon prime and up pops sasquatch and i'm like that'll get everybody's juices flowing how'd it go did it go off the charts Oh, I don't know. I didn't pay attention too much, but as far as the likes and stuff, I mean, it's such a unique setup, and and nobody's got it, and 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 everybody jokes that every Sasquatch picture is blurry, but yours are crisp, man. <laughs> Did you? Uh, you uh, are they living in that truck, or is that just something they use to get around? Or yeah, they just get around in it. Oh, I got kidnapped. Okay. I yeah. saw. Oh, so so they so you know the truck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we knew of okay. the truck, and we actually. Um, we had to pay to photograph on that property. Oh. Because that, you know, it's secret. Gotcha. Pay the Sasquatch. The family. It's a family of Sasquatches. Yeah. Sasquatches. Yeah. How do you say it? Sasquatch. Sasquatches. Sasquatch. Bigfoot. Bigfoot. There's Yeti. Well, Yeti, there's snow, the snow ones, the white ones. That's our next trip. <laughs> yeah, we got to find those guys, too. All right, so that's another assignment. Go find the Sasquatch. That'd be fun. Yeah. I think you got to throw fun pictures like that in on Instagram. Keep keep everybody on their edge. Absolutely. With the uh, with the new job, Dale, is that going to allow you to kind of expand your wildlife photography as well as uh, doing the content for for the company? Um, I think so. I I know that we. You know, it, it's very new. Like I'm, I haven't even. I, I won't start until the first of the month. Um, but it's kind of cool because there's going to be four other cameramen as well, or sorry, three other cameramen, so four with me. So we won't be gone just you know week after week after week. It'll be kind of like maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, um, through August, probably to the first of December, give or take. Um, so I, I do think that I'll still be able to stay pretty, pretty strong on it, especially kind of where I live, right? Like it, it helps that I'm an hour drive from decent, you know, location, but I, I don't know. We'll, I guess we'll kind of see how that all plays out, you know, being my first year into it, I obviously don't want to do anything that would, um, would hinder the, the job performance. So. I'm I'm interested to see what happens. Exciting new adventure, right? You don't know. Till Absolutely, you do. but I get to be outdoors a heck of a lot more often, and that's the overall, you know, goal. So, and you get a, to hang out with Randy. He's one of the nicest guys I know on the planet. He is a very very nice guy. We've we've had some good conversation and everything, and um, I actually just hung out with him on Friday afternoon at a conservation film fest here in Bozeman, so it was pretty nice. Thanks for taking the time, Dale. Absolutely. Yes. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, I can't you wait guys... to meet you in the field somewhere. If you're ever in Alaska, we're there a lot. I'm, I'm game for it, trust me. Good luck with your job. Thanks. I, yeah, I truly that's... appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast with Dale Evans behind the scenes of a student who just graduated in film and photography and is a very talented and ambitious photographer. You can check out his images and trust me, as we're doing so, 
just go to our website, wildandexposed.com, and check out the show notes for today's podcast. You can also see more of our team's material and images and videos and behind-the-scenes sense of humor that Missy puts up all the time. Some of us are subject to it more than others. On our Instagram feed at Wild and Exposed Podcast, on Facebook, and on YouTube. And no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, please take the time to hit that follow, that subscribe button, give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or thumbs up, because those do help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. I want to take a moment and thank our hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to bring this podcast to you on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.